Knowing the headlines isn't always enough. Sometimes you need to talk about it. For stimulating conversation on the day's hot topics, this is your station. This is your show, The Ryan Jesperson Show, on 630 Chen, Edmonton's breaking news and conversation station. 11.05 on this Monday morning. A whole bunch of really interesting feedback following Kelsey Wingarek's recap of her Arctic adventure, her time up in Resolute Bay, and you can see her videos, uh, and she's got more to come, posted on our Facebook page at 630Ched, of course, on the website as well. A text, uh, email rather, from Bruce says, after listening to Kelsey describe her experience in the Arctic, it brought back many memories of the years I spent working for Panarctic Oils in the early to mid-80s. Says Resolute was a spa compared to some of the conditions we had on the islands or the ice platforms even further north and west of Resolute Bay. Bruce says and the temperatures in Resolute would be yeah, minus 26 or so. He says back in the day, minus 26 almost seemed warm. He says, I remember not being able to lift the derrick on the oil rig because it was colder than minus 50 without a wind chill. Says one Christmas day in Ray Point, the reading with wind chill was minus 126. Says many times coming home to Edmonton after a shift in the Arctic, my ears, nose, cheeks would be peeling as a result of exposure. Wow. Dennis on the text line says, I, I lived from 1970 to 76 on Baffin Island, says the warmest day was about 22, minus 22. That's not uncommon in the summer. Or maybe he means plus 22, not uncommon in the summer. Says living with a constant awareness of the weather becomes a way of life. The coldest I experienced one day in the Yukon, minus 65, says glad Kelsey was able to experience a small sample. More Canadians should have that opportunity. Gerald says he worked in Resolute Bay in 78 and 79, said it was minus 50 to minus Minus 60, says he worked on oil rigs for two winters, never froze my body parts, says Gerald, maybe because we never stood around much. Yeah, I bet not. It's a pleasure to have the Archbishop of Edmonton, Richard Smith, in studio. Have, has your calling ever taken you somewhere totally unusual? Many times, actually, many times. Just recently, I had to take a trip to India, which was certainly a first for me. I was there for about three weeks, and a fascinating experience. So, yeah, you never quite know where the calling might lead. Yeah, I, I guess that's kind of part of the point, isn't it? Uh, when, when you're called into the ministry, when you're called into, to can I call it a, a faith-based career, is oftentimes you're, you're going to go where you're sent, not necessarily where you achieve to go. Career wouldn't be quite the appropriate word. Faith-based certainly would be the appro- appropriate uh, qualifier for sure. We, we speak in terms of vocation, calling, and following wherever the Lord might be leading us. About a year ago, and I want to tackle several topics with you this morning, uh, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled that Canadians have a right to physician-assisted death. Now, Alberta's Catholic leaders, yourself included, have spoken out. Uh, You went on record to say we want to be clear that from the Catholic perspective, the intentional, willful act of killing oneself or killing another human being is morally wrong. Now, it's expected that this will become an issue uh, here in Canada as legislation moves that way and as Canadians pursue what many are saying is their right to die. What do you want people to be thinking about from your perspective as we debate this? Oh gosh, Ryan, there's a, there's a number of things that I think we all have to be thinking about. This is um, clearly and literally a life and death issue. And it's something that really will impact everyone. We all have to face death. We all have to face illness and suffering within our own lives and uh, within the lives of our loved ones. And so to one degree or another, this will impact us. Now, 
One of the things that I that I really do think critically important here is that we take time and think through exactly what the situation is and where it's likely to lead in this country. Now, now clearly, uh, from a Catholic perspective, we would have a, a particular view on this. But this is something that extends, obviously, far beyond the church's concern. It's a societal concern that we all need to be very, very conscious of. Um, if I may, in your introduction, you mentioned that the Supreme Court established this as a constitutional right for Canadians. Well, I don't think that's quite accurate, and we need to be careful about our language here. What the Supreme Court decision said was that, you know, we have had up until now uh, criminal prohibitions against assisted suicide and euthanasia, and for persons in certain well-defined conditions, those prohibitions do not apply. So presumably, for people apart from those conditions, the prohibitions would continue to apply. So that's very different from a constitutional right. However, having said that, the way that they define those conditions is very vague and very broad and therefore extremely worrisome. So uh, a competent adult who is suffering an irremediable condition, such as illness or even disability, and for whom that creates in their circumstances intolerable suffering. So often, you know, people will think of these uh, issues, assisted suicide and euthanasia, in terms of terminal illness, but that's not what the Supreme Court says. Um, it doesn't mention anywhere terminal illness, but speaks of this in very broad terms. And so um, those definitions, those c conditions can apply very, very broadly. For example, I was talking to a doctor. He said, you know, I deal with a lot of patients in chronic pain. They're not in terminal conditions. Um, this could be made to apply to them. The disabled community sees right away, very quickly, or people who live with various forms of mental illness, they see very quickly uh, that this also could apply to them, even though their conditions are not terminal. Following the Supreme Court decision, uh, they gave the federal government a year to come up with legislation to match the direction that was given by the court. Um, so that would have been around this time. Um, that was not undertaken by the federal government, presumably because of the um, federal election that was taking place. Uh, so now the Supreme Court has given, at the request of the federal government, a four-month extension up until June to come up with some legislation. And to help them, the federal government constituted a number of panels, including a provincial territorial uh, advisory panel, which came up with, I think it was over 40 different recommendations. And those recommendations indicate already a willingness on the part of some to think far, far beyond the limits of the conditions established by the Supreme Court itself. So, for example, um, they raise the question as to whether why this should be limited in any way to age. And um, it was in a news interview not long after the release of its report that one of the panel members mused publicly that perhaps even a child as young as 12 years old should be allowed to be requesting assisted suicide or euthanasia or so on. So we can see that even though the Supreme Court has established some very narrow conditions, this could expand and likely will expand in ways that are very, very worrisome. 
If anybody wants to do a little bit more research on their own, they can simply Google the Supreme Court of Canada's unanimous decision known as the Carter ruling. And, and as you stipulated, Archbishop, it, it stated that Canadians with grievous and irremediable medical conditions who are enduring intolerable suffering have a right to die with a doctor's help. They also ruled furthermore that Canada's criminal prohibition on assisted death violates those rights. This may be an obvious question, but is this such an important issue to you and other Catholic leaders because it takes a shot at the bedrock of the sanctity of life? Well, it it does. It attacks that principle which you rightly describe as bedrock, but for that very reason, this needs to be a concern not just for the Catholic Church, but for all of society. Because up until now, um, that the principle which has assured the equal treatment of all persons, regardless of circumstance, achievement, physical condition, whatever, has been uh, respect for human life and the recognition that we ought not to be taking innocent human life. That's a bedrock principle on the basis of which our society has cohered for ages. But what if we don't use the word taking life? What if we see it as granting a request of someone who, in lucid thought, as an adult, decides that they want their time here on earth to be over? But you can't get away from the taking of life, because if you look at the acts itself, whether it's assisted suicide or euthanasia, that's not an autonomous, isolated act. It's a social act, in the sense that the person seeking this is making a request of others to assist them in the hastening of their death. Now, that has very, very broad societal worrisome implications if we think that through, because who are being involved in the act? It's the medical community and the legal community, which creates the legal space in which this can take place. Now, those two institutions, medicine and law, they are central to our society, central to our living together, and we as a society have been relying upon those two institutions in particular to uphold and to carry that principle of respect for human life. And now what we have is a situation whereby those same two institutions are allowing that principle to weaken. And when that principle weakens, so too does the common fabric of our society. What would you say then to those that would argue that medicine and law should be unimpacted by a religious influence? Well, again, the first thing I would want to say is this is broader than a religious issue. I think there are many people, um, perhaps even people of no faith, that would understand uh, just on the basis of that need for us to care for one another in ways that don't involve killing that this is a principle that we need to adhere to for the good of our society. Why do you think that Bible-based morality should be relevant to individual legislation, such as an individual's right to die? What about someone right now that's listening that's saying, with all respect to your, your religious freedom or your right to believe whatever you believe, I don't subscribe to Bible-based truth, so I want the right to be able to ask my physician for this if my life reaches a point where I can, you know, I'm living with intolerable pain. Well, a couple of things. First of all, the, the principle that would grow out of the Judeo and Christian tradition that's governing this conversation is, is encapsulated in the commandment, thou shalt not kill. Now, clearly, that's a biblical injunction against killing. 
at the same time, though, that is an injunction which is also accessible to people, even of no faith, through their reason. I think we all have deep within ourselves a moral intuition uh, that it is wrong to kill the innocent and we simply ought not to be doing this. This is not the way we care for one another that are suffering. We seek to walk with them, to stand in solidarity, to alleviate suffering wherever possible, but never to move from the alleviation of suffering to the elimination of the patient. That's a major, major step and represents a societal revolution. The other thing to keep in mind, and again, this is distinct from biblical revelation, when we talk about an individual's right to seek this, what we're actually talking about is a presumed right of someone to ask somebody else to help them to die. Well, I don't have the right to go to somebody else and say, will you kill me? Will you assist me? So, Except for the Supreme Court of Canada says that you do. I'm not sure it does. Again, it, 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 it talks about very limited conditions, and it does talk about a person's autonomous right in, that, in those circumstances, but it leaves unanswered a whole lot of questions that we are trying to raise by our statement that society needs to look at very, very carefully and think through thoroughly. You know, it, people used to refer to to right to die or to euthanasia as, uh, in some cases, invoking the word mercy. And there's certainly a legacy through the Bible that invokes uh, an expectation of mercy. How do you perceive that in this context? Well, the first the first thing to say is that uh, killing is not mercy. All right. In fact, you raise the question at an interesting time because. Uh, Pope Francis has declared a jubilee of mercy or a year of mercy in which he's certainly calling upon members of the Catholic Church but also the worldwide um, to consider the need to be merciful towards one another and the the word mercy uh, certainly in its biblical um, background conveys the sense of moving out from your heart towards one who is in need, whatever that need may be, in order to express compassion, love, concern, solidarity, and support. Um, so to do that and to reach out in ways that are merciful, certainly from our perspective, could never be envisioned as embracing the killing of the other. So where do you expect, or let me rephrase, where do you hope to see the Trudeau government take this? They're, they're compelled by the court's ruling. They, they've, as mentioned, uh, received a four-month, essentially, extension on what's expected within that one-year deadline. But what do you hope to see? Well, what I think we would have all hoped for, uh, whether it's the Trudeau government or any federal government, um, and the, in fact, the bishops of Canada nationally, at the end of our last national meeting, that was back in September, we called for the, the use of the notwithstanding clause, put this whole thing on hold for whatever it is, five years, I think, so that we can think this through. Um, now, that option has not been pursued. It doesn't sound as if the Trudeau government plans to pursue that particular option. So in its wake, one of the things we need to be working towards is to have legislation that is very, very I'm going to emphasize that, and highly restrictive with very, very clear safeguards, very careful oversight to guard against abuse. That even in saying that, I'm very nervous, I'm worried, and I don't mind saying that openly, because if we look at other jurisdictions where these practices have been legal for quite some time, whether it's Belgium or the Netherlands, 
uh, what had been put in place as so-called safeguards ended up being no safeguards at all. And so it's just a creeping expansion of the practice to the point that in some of those jurisdictions now, we've got parents talking about euthanizing their disabled children. I mean, how did we ever get to a point like this? This is not acceptable in what should be a just ethical society. Our guest in studio, the Archbishop of Edmonton, Richard Smith. When we come back, we'll talk about the March 31st deadline. 61 school boards across the province expected to come up with policies that support and protect LGBTQ students. It's obviously caused major waves within and outside of Edmonton and Alberta's Catholic school boards. We'll be back on that topic next. This is the Ryan Jesperson Show on 630 Chad, Edmonton's breaking news and conversation station. The Archbishop of Edmonton, Richard Smith, in studio. Uh, we'll talk about Bill 10 and, and uh, so-called inclusive policy expected of school boards in the province in just a moment. But uh, uh, during that commercial break, Archbishop, you, you suggested that it's perhaps an under-discussed element of the right-to-die debate, uh, the implications that it has on the medical profession. From your perspective, what do you mean exactly? Uh, well, I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of doctors about this, and they're, they're deeply concerned um, at a number of different levels. Uh, the, the first is that it, it, it really changes our understanding of the medical profession, of health care. Um, well, killing is not medicine. And I've talked to many doctors that said, listen, I have not signed up to be in a position where I kill a patient, um, assist in the death of a patient who asks to, to be put to death, or, or to, re to be complicit in any way. Uh, they're also deeply concerned and, and uh, justifiably about what this does to the relationship of trust between uh, the, the patient and, and the physician. So this is something I think that needs to be looked at also very, very carefully here. It impacts um, healthcare workers in a host of different ways. And we need to be able to find ways to stand with them and to um, to be in solidarity with them as they assert their rights, as they assert what they understand to be good medical practice as patients come to them. A listener by the name of Brian on the text line here uh, says, I have the right to choose where and when I die as long as I am deemed at that time to be sane and lucid. Why does society believe that a pet should not suffer when in pain, but humans must? No government or religious group has the right to tell me that I can't. What would you say to Brian? Well, there, there's a couple of things there. First of all, uh, we'll, we'll hear that often. We can uh, put our dog down, for example. Why can't I do the same with dad? You know? uh, but mom or dad, a relative, you, me, we're, we're not dogs. You know, We are human persons, human beings with personalities, with relationships. And there's an essential difference. And our society has always understood uh, the need to honor uh, the distinct human dignity of each person uh, that is inherent. And I'd like, I'd like to focus a little bit on that, that concept of dignity because it can, it can relate to some of those other uh, points that, that your listener is raising. How do we understand dignity? We talk about very often the right to die with dig First of all, the right to die, I've always found an odd expression because we are going to die anyway. 
with this idea of dying with dignity. And what do we understand by dignity? Um, from the Judeo-Christian perspective, certainly, uh, we understand dignity as inherent. It comes from being a human person with human personality. From the faith perspective, obviously, it comes from being a child of God, made in the image and likeness of God, and so on. But because the dignity is inherent, it needs to be honored in every human person, regardless of the circumstances of their lives. What I've noticed creep into this debate is an understanding of dignity which is, I think, described more as extrinsic. In other words, we assign dignity to another on the basis of a certain characteristic. So if I'm in good health, I'm enjoying dignity. But the, the, the inference from there would be if, if I'm suffering and not in good health, I somehow have less dignity. I have dignity if I'm able to contribute well uh, to the to society, a utilitarian understanding of dignity. Well, those that perhaps cannot contribute, those that are confined to bed, those that are confined to wheelchairs, does that mean, therefore, that they somehow have less dignity than others? So but isn't this sort of a... But, and what's related to that, though, to go back to your, to your listener's point, this therefore raises the question of how we, as a society, respond to those who are suffering or who are in need. It's very common for people who are who are suffering, out of that normal human sense of lament, to seek help, to seek relief, and in certain instances to, to seek death. The question that's being raised by this particular issue is, how do we as a society respond to those requests? And the chilling interpretation that comes from the Supreme Court decision is that, and it's unmistakable, they are saying uh, that there are certain lives that are not worth living. And so if we as a society say to someone who seeks death, you know, we agree, your life is no longer worth living, then that's a major societal failure. Or maybe we're saying we agree it's your right to determine whether or not your life is still worth living. But we have to be very, very careful there because um, we are autonomous persons to a degree, but we can never understand autonomy such that it eclipses our interrelatedness with others, our interdependence, and therefore our responsibility to others as well as to society. This all has to be brought into play, and when we do, and when we think it through, then we'll see that this is representing a societal revolution that's going to have implications and consequences that we really not, ought not to have. More with, more with Edmonton's Archbishop uh, Richard Smith right after these headlines. You're listening to The Ryan Jesperson Show on 630 Chat, Edmonton's breaking news and conversation station. Richard Smith, the Archbishop of Edmonton, our guest in studio. You've certainly uh, played a prominent role, as has your colleague in Calgary, Bishop Fred Henry, in speaking out against uh, Education Minister David Egan's initiative, giving school boards until March 31st to come up with policies that support and protect LGBTQ students. This has been a very divisive issue, and I think for a lot of people, it's been the first time in a while that we've seen the Catholic Church as an entity insert itself so prominently into uh, debate around things like curriculum or school policy. Is this sort of unfamiliar territory for you to a certain extent? Um, well, no, not at all. The, uh, the, the, the Catholic Church in the province, particularly through its school boards, 
is in constant dialogue with the Ministry of Education over the, a whole host of things in education, as it must be. Um, I, th- I think it's important to, to clarify that, to just if I can go back to what you said in your introduction, um, this is not a situation where the bishops are going out against the minister in terms of his uh, desire to be uh, protective of a certain group of uh, students. That's not what this is about at all. Uh, for quite some time, we've been working with the Ministry of Education uh, to create policies and a framework for the formulation of policies that will be inclusive, caring of every one of the students uh, in our midst and in our care. What has come out recently, though, uh, from the provincial government, in an attempt to help school boards uh, come up with these policies, were a set of guidelines. And uh, now, admittedly, they were put forward as uh, recommendations and suggestions. Um, but nevertheless, they, they carried within them a particular vision of the human person, which would be counter to Catholic understanding, Catholic Christian anthropology. And on that basis, we said, no, wait a minute. There are certain aspects of your guidelines, certain best practices that, yes, we could live with, certainly, that could be put into place within our own framework of understanding. But there's certain other elements here which touch on uh, anthropology and the way the human person is understood, particularly their sexual identity, gender identity, and so on which would be counter to Catholic teaching. And so this is not something that could work. Your colleague, Bishop Henry, called the guidelines totalitarian and anti-Catholic in a letter that was uh, with some controversy sent out uh, to Catholic parents or parents of, that have students in, in the Catholic board uh, here in Edmonton. It's It's been quite a divisive issue, and many listeners to this show have texted in to suggest that while Catholic schools and Catholic boards receive public funds, they should have to adhere to these guidelines. How would you respond to that? Well, public funds, the expenditure of public funds is an exercise of governance on the part of the government of the day. And so the government uh, in the expenditure of tax dollars, uh, many of which of course are directed by the choice of Catholic parents to the support of Catholic schools, but in the expenditure of those tax dollars, public dollars, the, the government itself needs to adhere to our whole history of legal jurisprudence with respect to Catholic schools. Uh, One of the most recent instances of clarification in that jurisprudential area was a Supreme Court decision uh, dealing with the Loyola High School in Montreal in which the um, court made very, very clear that the school, a Catholic school, has the right to act precisely in accordance with its identity in all matters. And we, the way we put that is that our Catholic school curriculum and all of, our, all of our, what happens in a Catholic school needs to be fully permeated uh, with the tenets of the Catholic faith. And so um, the government, precisely as government, and the ministry, precisely as ministry of the crown, needs to be protective of, of those Catholic rights in our schools as they are protective of the whole educational enterprise in the province. You recently wrote a letter where you suggested that most of Edmonton's Catholic school trustees appreciate the duality of their job and their faith, but others don't. You said, it saddens me to say this is not the case with some trustees in the Edmonton Catholic School District. There, for too long now, we have witnessed the inability of trustees to function in a cohesive way or speak with a unified voice. Is Edmonton's Catholic school board dysfunctional 
model in your estimation right now? It had some challenging moments, um, but as you know, um, the minister appointed a, I guess the term would be consultant, uh, to work with uh, the board members to help them sort out some of the difficulties and the challenges that they've, they've been facing. Um, I've not been uh, directly involved in that particular process, so I couldn't speak uh, as to how that is unfolding, but I would have confidence that uh, this particular consultant with the competence that he is known to have will be of great assistance to them. Are you confident that between now and March 31st, this deadline, that there will be some resolution reached that all parties can agree on that offers the protection and the that encourages the inclusion that I think is the spirit behind these guidelines while at the same time respects what you say needs to be respected, the autonomy of the Catholic Church? Yeah, no, I, I do have hope. Um, it was known publicly a couple of weeks ago that the uh, four of the bishops here in the province met with the Minister of Education. Uh, I found it to be a very, very um, good, frank, productive discussion. The minister was a, was a very, very good listener. And we were able to share with him uh, and to c- explain with him in more depth uh, some of our concerns. And he listened uh, very, very carefully to all of that. And uh, the, 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 the common point of concern for all of us, obviously, is the care and the protection of our children. I mean, that that is the goal, and we want all of our schools to be inclusive and to be safe. And I have to say they they are. They're already doing a, a wonderful, wonderful job. I'm in the schools all the time. And I see firsthand that the principals, the teachers, they face a whole range of, of problems that our kids are having to grapple with. And they know what to do. They know how to care for them. They know how to love them. And so we can have a lot of confidence in that. And at the policy level, too, we can have some confidence because the shared concern is the protection the safety and the love of our children. That's the goal. There can be a variety of methodologies to get there. Well, that's fine, so long as we're all working towards that same goal, and I'm confident that we are. In conversations we've had on this show about this, including uh, following an interview late last week with the Education Minister, David Egan, several times listeners have suggested that an unelected archbishop has undue influence on elected school trustees. I'm sure uh, by the nodding that you're displaying right now that this is not the first time you've heard this. How do you respond to that? I think it's important to understand exactly how this works. Um, Sometimes when I hear these comments, I get the impression that people may think that perhaps I've got an office next door to the superintendents and I'm in there helping to craft policy and giving edicts on this, that, and the other thing. Uh, But it doesn't work that way because um, we do have elected trustees in our various divisions and they're responsible for governance and working with administration and management for all aspects of education. Uh, particular to Catholic schools, of course, is uh, the need to be acting in accordance with our identity as as Catholic institutions and enterprises. And the bishop is the necessary point of reference for clarification as to what would be consistent with our Catholic identity and what would not. And so um, it's not at all unusual for a bishop to be consulted and say, help us understand this particular issue, help us to understand the teaching of the church, the teaching of our faith here, so that they then, in their own respective areas of competence, can go forward and act accordingly.
Before we say goodbye to you, Archbishop, I want to hear a little bit about this Come and See weekend that you're putting on. Not many people talk about recruitment and retention when it comes to the priesthood, but we'll get details on that from Edmonton's Archbishop Richard Smith right after this. This is the Ryan Jesperson Show on 630 Chad, Edmonton's breaking news and conversation station. The Archbishop of Edmonton, Richard Smith, joining us in studio. And thank you for the extended length interview here. You mentioned you're you were in India a short time oh. ago. Did, did that have? Did, was that a recruiting effort? What was the purpose of that trip? Um, in the Archdiocese of Edmonton, we have a number of priests from different countries that come here very generously and a great sacrifice to themselves and to their own families back home in order to serve our people. Among those countries is India, from which we have about 20 priests that are serving here now. And they come from a variety of different religious communities or or dioceses in that country. So uh, I was really overdue in making a trip there to meet their authorities, uh, to thank them personally, to renew some contracts, uh, strengthen those relationships. But also, and this is probably the primary reason, I wanted to get a sense personally of the societal background uh, and ecclesial background from which these priests are coming in order to serve here. I mean, the role of the the archbishop towards his priest, obviously, is to be of a support to them and to walk with them and to help them in their ministry. And uh, in order to do that, it was important for me, I felt, to understand their own background and the, and the enormity of the sacrifice that they have made to make such a dramatic transition from the Indian culture to the Canadian. So I was there for about just shy of three weeks, I think, in the southern, four of the southern states of India. Fascinating culture. Uh, found the people to be extraordinarily welcoming, gracious, hospitable. Uh, so it, it, I found uh, that it was certainly well worth the effort. I was surprised to hear you uh, say that about 400,000 Catholics represented by the Archdiocese mm-hmm. of Edmonton. Mm-hmm. Would, would you describe it as, I mean, because we'll oftentimes uh, hear from societal commentators that church congregations are, are dying on the vine, that there aren't right. many young people going to church anymore. Have you seen that in, in, in your... I have not. Since I mean, When I hear those comments, I sometimes wonder what congregations they're speaking of. Um, we have a, what I have found here, I've been the Archbishop almost nine years now, and it's an extraordinarily dynamic archdiocese and, and varied. We have a rather, well, it's like our city. We have a cosmopolitan Catholic congregation that has come from a variety of countries through immigration. There's a whole host of different ethnic backgrounds and experiences. And it's fascinating to see that all coalesce in any one particular congregation where I have found a, a wide range of ages, um, economic backgrounds, and so on, but all coming together in very, I'd have to say, vibrant, dynamic ways in order to celebrate their faith. So I found it very, very encouraging and edifying. And the Archdiocese of Edmonton uh, reaching out, I suppose, to potential priests with a, a Come and See weekend coming up this weekend. If people are interested, they can check out caedm.ca slash vocations. What's this all about? Well, um, it's interesting to hear you use the word uh, recruitment. I mean, it, it, when it comes to the priesthood, it's, it's, it's a little different. You can't sort of go to a career day and say, have you thought about this? Because what we're talking about is precisely vocation, a calling from the Lord. And so the, the role of the church, and certainly the church's officials, well, the role of all of us, is to help people be open to hear that call 
because we're dealing today with a, a wide variety of messaging that comes at us in terms of what it means to be happy in life, how you, what you should be making of your life, and so on. But what about the voice of the Lord in the midst of all of that? So one of the ways in which we, as an archdiocese, and other dioceses do it also, one of the ways in which we help people be attuned to that voice is to host at our seminary, that's the place where people train to, to be priests, to host at our seminary what we call a come and see weekend. And so uh, pastors in their parishes, they'll be in tune with some of the young men that uh, seem to be showing signs of a vocation. They'll encourage them, why don't you take a little bit of time, maybe go visit the seminary this weekend, meet the seminarians, meet the priests that are in charge of formation, get a little sense of what this is all about and see see what that might uh, do to help your, your own discernment. So Can you see it ever being week. open to young women as well? Well, that's something that the church has, has uh, stated very, very, very clearly is, is not going to happen. Uh, John Paul II made that very clear, and Pope Francis recently reiterated that. Is that a tough position to defend these days? Uh, not if it's understood properly. I think if you, it depends upon um, uh, your particular category of thought when you're thinking about this. Because, first of all, we're talking about vocation. That means, so we're not talking about a right to anything. And we're talking about a sacrament, which is the way in which the Lord Jesus himself has chosen to order things within the church. The Lord Jesus, who himself uh, showed ex beautiful, beautiful, and for his time, extraordinary openness to women, companionship with them, and, and uh, appreciating their dignity, and so on. Um, and so when we understand it in those terms, then we understand that in no way is this a diminishment of the dignity of women. This is simply a recognition that the church does not have the authority to go beyond uh, something that the Lord himself has established. Archbishop, thank you for your time today. You're very welcome. Been Pleasure. looking forward to catching up. This is the Archbishop of Edmonton. You've been hearing from Richard Smith. Some closing remarks after this. You're listening to The Ryan Jesperson Show on 630 Chat, Edmonton's breaking news and conversation station. Our thanks to the Archbishop of Edmonton, Richard Smith, for joining us for an extended conversation on this Monday morning. Of course, uh, feedback is varied and very opinionated at that. Jeff says religion and public money are a bad combo, like science and voodoo. They don't mix well. Kellyanne says, regarding women in the priesthood, this is where the archbishop loses me. There were women in the upper room, yet man is excluding us from serving the ultimate role. This will change. Mark my words. That from Kellyanne. Sarah B. says, I'm a former Catholic. Other churches respect women to lead in that type of position. Are you saying that women can't have that calling? Listener here out of Fort McMurray says, bless the Archbishop for speaking the truth on the living with dignity issue rather than dying with dignity. Says, my husband is terminally ill, cannot walk, needs assistance with daily tasks, but he is trying desperately to live. Others may not see value in his life, but we do. We need to provide those who are terminally ill with the support they need to live with dignity. They do not need to be assisted with suicide. This is all right to die is. Assisted suicide. Archbishop Smith is right to speak out on this and let us know that all life is valued however imperfect you may think you are another says i'm sorry please explain what my or what some religious bishops opinion has to do with my publicly funded health care options the spoiler is nothing another says i don't think i've heard a more infuriating guest thanks for getting the blood burning another says 
It is not the business of an archbishop to have his nose, per se, in an individual's personal decision. Topher says it reminds me of Henry Ford's motto, you can get any color you like as long as it's black. You can believe in anything as long as it's what we believe in. You can let me know what you think about this. The whole goal was to get us all talking, diving into issues, maybe even disagreeing from time to time. You can swing by 630ched.com, check on the show's link if you'd like to send us an email. And while you're there, don't forget to check out Kelsey Wingarek's incredible Arctic adventure videos. We'll have updates on the Ward 12 by-election through the day. Oilers Now is coming right up with the noon news in between. Make it a great Monday, and thanks for being part of the conversation today.